it's tough and to, to, to look at things regionally instead of like well i built a black over here so i need to build a black this way over there like it's not the case you need to really have the mindset and the eyes to adapt to different terrains and different situations to to to, to meet these clients needs or these communities needs it's it's uh, it's tricky man Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. If you are new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Episode 77 once again features James Flatten, the original flow farmer and longtime trail builder based out of Colorado. The format of this interview is different from others in that James reached out to me for the purpose of openly discussing the trail riding standard in mountain biking. I really welcome this type of conversation as it not only provides a platform for trail builders and industry people to be heard, but it also allows for the sharing of opinions. For me personally, my viewer thoughts on trail ratings has changed since this conversation. Something that there needs to be more of in life today is really listening to others' perspectives and points of view to understand why people have formed the opinions they have, especially when those people are veterans in a certain industry or have a huge amount of reps in a given profession. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Support for Trail Fight comes from Giants Ridge and Ride the Range in northern Minnesota. Check out volumes 1, 2, 3, and 4 of the Range Report to learn about more what's happening in northern Minnesota at Ride the Range Trail Systems and Giants Ridge. The value for value concept is something that has caught my attention. If you find value in the Trail Effect podcast, you now have a way to provide value for that value via Patreon for Trail Effect. This podcast is an Evolution Trail Services production. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. Now on to the Trail Effect with James Flatton, the original flow farmer. I know Salida is terrible internet. I actually turned off my Wi-Fi, went to 5G because I have full 5G service here, which always seems to be better when it's kind of like around the weekend when all the tourists get to Salida, everyone eats up the internet and all the remote workers and stuff in town. And it makes it really slow. Like festival weekends are terrible. <laughs> all right, take three. Let's uh... take three. The unofficial intro with James Flatten, the original flow farmer, which we've had a conversation before. And that was a really mm-hmm. good podcast. It was really well received, especially by other trail builders. And James had texted me. I don't know. Was, I think I had looked at my text today to, to kind of get a reference on when this was. It was June 7th. And the text said, I had a thought. Have you talked to anyone about the trail difficulty rating and the standard or the lack thereof? And I think my response was that could be as controversial as clips versus flats. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I don't understand the controversy behind it, but it's definitely something that seems a little bit vague and obscure in this, in this community of ours. And I wish, I wish that, you know, my thought is the lack thereof, the standard and kind of where this, where this idea sparked for me is I'm working on a project and it's on private property. Um, I am building a black, a black trail 
you know, black diamond expert only trail or whatever. And it's on green terrain and the client himself actually doesn't really want any gaps on the trail. You know, he wants to be able to roll everything or if there is a big jump, have roll arounds and you know, it's the client. He's going to get what he, what he requests. That's what we do as trail builders. We do build for clients. We are contractors. So that begged the question to me is like, okay, well then what, what is a black trail supposed to be? And I believe that I'm building this guy a black trail on his little miniature trail network on 130 or 160 acres or something like that. And that's because it's the hardest trail on his property. So that would be his black trail, his most difficult trail. And where I really struggle with this lack there, lack of standard is we've basically adopted the ski area wintertime principle of green, blue, black, double black, you know, and now we have pro line, blah, blah, blah. But what I, what I believe that the skiers and the ski industry understands is that these trail ratings are per mountain, per ski hill. You know, you, you go to the ski hill, the double black on that ski hill is going to be the absolute hardest thing on that exact mountain where the green is going to be the easiest thing on that mountain. You can't go to Aspen Highlands and ride a black or ski a black and go to ski Cooper, which if no one knows what ski Cooper is, it's a really flat, tame family mountain and ride a black there. And you can't compare the two. They cannot be the same thing. And I believe skiers are aware of this, but it seems like mountain bikers are not like if they ride a blue trail at 18 road in Fruta and they go ride a blue trail at powder horn on the grand Mesa, they are not even in the same sport per se they can't be compared. It's completely different. And then people will pick apart trail builders for like, Oh, well you didn't build a blue trail here. You know, it, this is a black trail. I'm like, no, it's a blue trail for here, but it's, it's, it's not a blue trail for there. So this is, it's just something that's really, I'm kind of rambling on here a little bit, but it's something that has definitely perplexed me for my 15 year career. And I believe others feel the same. Yeah, well, the the good thing is this is long form media, so you can ramble on as long as you want, <laughs> and we're all here to listen. <laughs> and and I, you know, it's funny. So, as a baseline for this conversation, this morning I quickly looked up that what Imba calls the Imba Trail ra- Trail Difficulty Rating System, which is like you said, it's it's based on which I didn't even know. So apparently, there's a white circle now. I didn't know that. Oh wow. So, yeah, so now there's a easiest is white circle, according to Imba. Easy is green circle. More difficult blue, as you talked about already. Very difficult is black. And extremely difficult is double black. And then there is the pro line as well. Not on this standard, but on, you know, it's it came up at the conference I was at a couple weeks ago that pro line is, is like beyond, which in my opinion, I think universally pro line is like, Good luck. Hopefully we see at the bottom, right? (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. You know, but this is something that I go around in my own head. Like I know, I know exactly where, you know, where you're coming from. And when it, when you look at it from a, a region or a trail system specific rating, cause I look, you know, I look at what I was riding in park city and I compare it to what I ride back home in lacrosse and there's stuff that was green in park city. 
that would be blue where I live in lacrosse, right? Which I think is exactly, you know, it's, it, and, and what you described to me, as far as your, your client ask, that described to me that he wants a blue trail with black features. Yeah, a blue trail with the option to ride a black. Correct. But it's predominant, predominantly blue. Yeah. And that's, that's what I heard when you explained that, whether or not his intent was that obviously, you know, his intent way better than me because you're working on his land. You're, you know, you've probably had multiple conversations with, with the property owner. And so it it is, it is a difficult thing to wrap your head around. What is your thoughts? Just generally speaking, what are your thoughts of just using the same symbols from the ski industry? I mean, I think, I think they've been already adopted and they should be used. It's kind of universal at this point with any kind of, uh, I hate like extreme sport or whatever, but it seems like any kind of action-based sport has adopted these symbols and it's, it's universal. It's recognizable by the masses. And I, I feel like that's okay. W- what I'm really looking for or what I want to see or whatever is just a better understanding from clients for trail builders and for users to really understand what all that means. And what I'm looking for in, you know, from a builder standpoint is like, let's, let's classify like, okay, a green trail is pretty easy. You don't have to do much braking. Like, like as far as bike, I think, let me back up a second. I think for these trail rating systems, what you need to do to manipulate your bike to negotiate the trail is what we need to look at. So if you have a black trail on green terrain, like, like what I'm building, I put really rhythmy stuff in it to where, you know, maybe the jumps are eight to 12 feet, but you have three bike lengths between those two jumps. So you have to have good bike handling skills. You have to be able to land, recover spot, negotiate your next obstacle really quickly it doesn't need to be gigantic stuff to be a black it just needs to be more technical and by technical i mean bike handling skills braking turning you know manipulating the forces where a green for instance should have less of that going on because a green rider doesn't necessarily know to use 70 percent of their front brake to to stop you know a rear brakes for slowing down, a front brakes for stopping. Like they don't know that yet. So we shouldn't be putting a green rider in those kinds of predicaments on a green trail, you know? Yeah. And so what I'm hearing is a green trail, a person can probably actually sit on their seat the whole way down. You know, they don't really have to have any bike body separation. Yeah, exactly. They, they should just be able to, quote unquote unplug and just kind of feel what the bike is going to do or, or wants to do, or, you know, just, just basic stuff. And it it can even go into jumps. Like if you're going to have a beginner jump line, you shouldn't make it to where a rider has to pump because they don't know, they don't know how to hell a pump yet. They should just be able to ride and be stiff and weird and, and have enough time to recover and go off the next thing. Yeah, and just send it dead sailor style the whole way down the hill. (laughs) Right, front wheel high, back seat, you know, and makes that stuff so then they can start to feel, you know, start to progress into what it's like to manipulate your bike. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, it's interesting. So I've dealt with this, you know, I guess you could call the local parks department, the landowner where I live. And at one point they tried to classify, reclassify their own trail rating system based on length. And so they, they called the trail a black trail because it was two and a half miles long. <laughs> and I'm just like, in theory, you could have a green trail that goes on for a hundred miles or more. Like we can't, can't classify based on length. Right. <laughs> and so there is that, you know, so there is some of that confusion out there as well, especially when you're talking with clients and I'm going to use clients as, as a, as a general term, it may not be in tune as much as a builder or a, or a, what, or a regular everyday mountain biker. I don't want to say the word hardcore because it, it's kind of cliche at this point, but someone who's, you know, proficient at mountain biking that, uh-huh. that threw me sideways. I'm like, we can't, we can't do this. Like there's rail to trail trails out there, right. That are old railroad grades that are hundreds of miles long. Like those would be black diamond trails in that, by that definition, <laughs> but they're flat and they're wide and they're gravel. Right. You know, that's yeah, green that's... circle <laughs> or white yeah, circle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I can understand the concept behind it being as if you are getting more and more remote, you should have more skills to get you back. You know, say you have a mechanical or something. So I can, I can understand the remoteness of it, but from a point to point, I don't know, like it's, that's a little, a little tricky. Like the plunge for instance is, I mean, really that's a trail that should probably have all of the ratings from white to double black, you know, but they went blue on top, black after you drop off shirt tail point down autos wall and stuff. And it would be, you, you can't throw someone down a blue and tell them like, Oh, you know, we have a black section, a blue section, green section, double black section. You know, that's just really confusing and you're going to get people in over your head. So I, I get why. By that, but um, you know, there's sections of the plunge that's definitely kind of cruiser blue riding, but it's so remote and you're so far out there, then it should be rated as a black because a beginner to intermediate rider really shouldn't be there in the first place. And I think if they see any designation in there in the middle, like, oh, this is a green section, they're like, oh, I'll go, you know. So it's, and I, I like the concept too of, of creating trail networks that all the greens are the closest to the parking lot. The blues are the furthest away and the blacks are the furthest. So the, 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 the more you get out there, the more you have to want it, the better rider you are to go deal with that stuff out, out yonder versus right at the parking lot. So. Yeah. I've, I've actually heard that argument go two ways as well. Cause what you're, what you're describing is what we know in the trail industry as the stacked loops, stacked loop system, uh-huh. you know, Correct. and I've, I actually had this conversation I think I had this conversation with uh, Rich Edwards and a couple other guys from Imbo when we were doing some planning in my local community back in 2019. And I, th- and I could be wrong, but I'm fairly certain the conversation went, sometimes you should have a black trail right off the parking lot, not being the only option. But if you say you got eight trails that leave a parking lot, maybe you should have a black trail so you can have, so you can have that quick loop type experience for that experienced rider that just wants to do maybe session that thing, but that is definitely not appropriate for the average rider and something that wouldn't be a gateway to, to blues or greens. Right. Mm-hmm. Does that yeah, make exactly. sense? 
Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I can see that, you know, being like a jump, a jump trail or something that, that someone's got an hour to kill or 30 minutes and they can go burn some hot laps and kind of get their thrill. I, yeah. I do understand that. Yeah. And I think, the, and I, and I'm, I'm fairly certain the context of that conversation was, was just that, like, maybe I don't have two hours to go through that green, and that blue, that green and that blue to get to that black from a time perspective, you know, but mm-hmm. you know, so there's obviously we're opening multiple cans of worms here. Oh yeah. Back to, back to the Palisade plunge, you know, that's a long trail. And this is, this is actually another thing that I've questioned also is like, if you have a trail, you know, like the Palisade, I've not been on the Palisade plunge, but I'm envisioning a trail that say is predominantly blue, but has some, has one or two, we're just going to say is predominantly blue for that region. And, but has one or two unavoidable black features on it. How do you then label that trail? I mean, I think it's going to depend on a, the amount of exposure and exposure being elements and physical exposure to danger and cliffs and things like that. You know, we, we went through a few meetings getting that designation as a black for the bottom portion of that trail being the majority of the trail because a blue rider should not be in those situations, both physically and mentally, you know, this should be a pretty sound expert level rider to get, to get out there. You know, I think the County and several bike shop shuttle companies were wanting a blue designation to capitalize on it. Like, oh, we can rent more bikes. We could shuttle more people. It's designated a blue, but it's not the, I mean, even the whole enchilada has some exposure and it's, it's labeled as a black though, because of the, just the, the length of it, but there's several, several bailouts. The plunge does not have many bailouts, just a couple at the top. And then one more, a third of the way down the bottom portion after you drop off the rim. But from there down, you're committed to 14 miles. You can't bail out anywhere. So Okay, so let me get this straight because I haven't been there. So you're when you go from a say a green or a blue rating to a black rating, there's actually an out. So the person it just the trail doesn't actually just turn black and you're just kind of SOL. Exactly. You, where where it transfers is from Mesa Top parking lot and then the Shirt Tail parking lot. Shirt Tail parking lot down is black from Mesa Top to Shirt Tail is blue. Got it. Got it. So like so if there were no so let's say the trail has no outs. Right. And maybe the Palisade plunge is a poor example because it's so long, but say it's like, we'll talk about a, you know, a, what you'd find in maybe a local community. It's we'll say a two mile long trail up or down. Doesn't matter. We're not, we don't have to be gravity based here. If it has no outs and it has one black feature on it, would that be a black trail in your, in your mm-hmm. opinion? I mean, I think it's going to depend on that level of exposure. Okay. If it's an, an, an exposure, just to be clear, doesn't need necessarily mean like you're going to fall off a cliff, you know, exposure, exposure to elements, I will say, and all of the elements like heat, lack of water, remoteness, cliffs, you know, steep, steep cross slopes, all these things I think classify under the umbrella of exposure. So just a standard black or standard cross country trail with one black feature, I don't necessarily think needs to be classified as a black unless you need a certain amount of skills to properly negotiate and navigate said trail. 
I mean, yeah. someone can get off and walk a walk one black feature if they're a blue level rider. If if if, a, if an intermediate rider can get around it just fine. And that's where I think people go sideways sometimes, because some people cannot get off their bike because of their ego. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So I'm yeah, sure. I, I mean, it's true. Like, hundred percent. It's life. Sometimes things are difficult and sometimes we have to swallow our pride and just realize, you know what? I want to ride again tomorrow or whenever that next time is. I don't need to be a hero and I might have to get off and walk this feature. Yeah, definitely. And I think as, as trail builders, it's important for us to build in those challenges. I mean, I personally don't want to ride the trail over and over again and never get off my bike or never be challenged just for fitness purposes. I mean, it's, it's a personal, it's a personal experience for everyone. And, and who am I to say what people are getting out of their ride? But that's my personal opinion. I don't mind. I, I get off and walk my bike and there's certain climbing sections. I can't clean some days and other days I can. So, I mean, I think that's part of the love of the sport. Yeah. And you recently posted a video of, was that El Dutorino? Uh, yes. In Slida. So let's talk about that trail. I don't, I don't know that trail. I watched the video and I was like, man, I wish I had something like that where I lived. Cause there's no way I'd clear up a lot of the stuff on that trail, but it would give me that challenge to attempt to, to rise to the occasion in at least some of the areas. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a heck of a trail, man. It's, it's actually a double black, which I think is aptly rated because of the sheer exposure of that thing, there's, there's a spot in particular where I kind of go off the rim and, you know, you got to kind of like hop up this rock and then you're on this knife edge, you know, spine of cliff anyway, where, you know, from there for the next 50 feet of trail, you can fall 40 feet off a cliff. Like there's no denying it. We, we inslope the trail away from the cliff. So if anything should go awry, you just kind of lean with the, the angle of the trail but um but yeah that that thing was a a feat to build and it's a feat to ride and i was pleasantly surprised with how well it was riding with the steepness of it after three years with zero maintenance and i think that's because it's it's aptly rated as a double black so people shy away from it and and the squirrel catcher feature at the beginning is really gnarly it wasn't in my video my video actually picked up about a thousand feet into the trail for purposes of time and to skip out a climb or whatever. But, um, yeah, that, uh, that trail is cool, man. It was a really, really good indicator of what can be built professionally and, and withstand time and, and forces of riders. It's, it's fun. And I was, I was scared of that trail for a lot of years and, and it's, as a, as a rider, right. Or as a writer, maybe yes. as a builder yeah. too. <laughs> <laughs> well, we uh, all all the builders involved with that build were definitely pretty nervous as we were as we were making our way down. But everything rolls and it's there, and that's a great you know, like you say, it's something you can work up to, and you can knock a feature off of the list a week or something if you wanted to. Oh yeah, and, for sure. Yeah, and that's what what actually what amazed me about that video, and maybe the trail is when you look at a video, it seems to flatten everything out and you really can't tell 
like you, you, you just can't tell how difficult something may, might actually be per video. And I was watching that video going, holy shit, like that, that looks difficult. And if it looks difficult on right on video, it's gotta be extremely difficult. Yeah, you're right, man. There, there are some things I've, I've looked at on GoPros or whatever, like, oh, I think, I think that looks feasible. And then just go see it in person. Like how the hell did that even happen? So it's, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. What, uh, so you mentioned, we'll go back to Palisade plunge. Cause I'm just, I'm a little bit curious on how the, I, I'd like you to go a little bit deeper on how the conversation went. You don't have to name names or even businesses or whatever, but I'm curious to know how some of those conversations went and maybe just a few little tidbits that came out of those conversations to get the ratings the way it was, because obviously there were two different interests at play there. One is a business interest and one is like, this is what it is. Like we should really be honest to the, to the potential user of what's going to happen, what could happen here. I mean, in all actuality, it, it took a few, few phone calls. There was one in-person meeting that I myself didn't go through. I was up working and building on it, but I believe Mays, Greg Mazu went to that meeting and talked with the county commissioners and, and a couple of the business owners, some, some people with some stake in the game. And I mean, they were a little resistant about the redesignation for tourism purposes. But I think once we pleaded our case and there were some site visits and, and people really saw in person what was going on up there. And I'll just say is like the bottom seven miles or so, give or take a mile that is really exposed. And that's really where you're in the middle of nowhere and you have nowhere to go, but down literally because it gets really steep. I think that trail drops third of the elevation in the last six or so miles. Oh, wow. Which is, which is pretty crazy. So you're, you're all the way at the end of your Epic ride. And then you have the hardest things to negotiate with the most exposure. You get out there in the summertime on that. And when you're facing the, when you start, dropping off of I think it's called the Palisade or whatever down into Palisade, Colorado. And you start going down those sandstone switchbacks and you're just facing due west, due southwest really, and you're just getting beamed on by the sun. I mean, you probably picked up twenty degrees of temperature, you know, ambient temperature at that point. You know, there's no water sources anymore. Like every every you're just completely out there and really exposed to the elements. And that's where your skill and your perseverance and your desire to, to, you know, accomplish the task is really put to the test. So kind of once we, once we presented those arguments, it was pretty easy at that point. I mean, there's no fall zones on that trail. And and once, once that was known, it, it went, it went pretty good. You know, and it's interesting for having to have Greg make that argument because Greg owns a tour company, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so if you have a tour company owner that potentially could capitalize from more tour business, you know, he's he's telling. I'm assuming he's telling it like it is. Like we really got to be honest about this and tell people what, you know, what they're potentially getting themselves into. It's like I, yeah. I don't want to beat the Palisade plunge horse to death. And I don't think I actually am here with my next question, but like we haven't, we talked about that trail a couple different times on this podcast, but I don't know if we've really talked about what I'm going to ask next, next, which is what should the average person expect in terms of how much water should they take? How much time should they plan for? Like, and I mean, average, like not, 
your XC racer, highly skilled athlete, but somebody who is a mountain bike enthusiast that maybe rides a couple times a week, but isn't, you know, like what, what is the expectation that they should have to complete that trail from one end to the other, having the proper skills to negotiate it? Oh man. So I saw, I saw a graphic about a week, two weeks ago or something that Mesa County search and rescue is advising people to carry two and a half gallons of water on that trail, which I think is absolutely absurd. Like who can carry 25 pounds of water? I mean, that's, that's insane, but I think a solid water bottle of electrolytes, another bottle of water, and then perhaps a cap, you know, a, a reservoir in your pack hydration pack full, you know, 70 ounces. I mean, I, I say carry as much as possible, have some food with you. That's always a good idea. I think no matter what, anyway, have a good, a good, you know, selection of, you know, you, obviously tubes are a no brainer, but you know, maybe have a chain, maybe some brake pads. I think just, just kind of basic things to get your bike out of there. You know, you don't necessarily have to push it, but you can, you can fix and repair, repair things or have someone in your group that has that knowledge to, to do so. And I think for your average weekend warrior type rider, I think allotting yourself five to seven hours to do the trail is, is appropriate. I did it from shirt tail point to the bottom in about two and a half hours, three hours once. And I, I stopped off for about an hour to visit the crew. So I was top to bottom in under four hours. And uh, I think that was the first, first full pull on that trail. That was pretty sweet. It, I mean, it's not to someone that's seasoned and is hydrated, like go out hydrated in the first place, you know, like, and then you need less water throughout the day. You just need to keep, keep up your hydration you don't necessarily need to completely bloat yourself with two and a half gallons of water. And you can take a filter with you. And the, when you cross Mesa Creek, just past one of the road, your last road crossing, actually, like across the top, you can drink a ton of your water and you could top off all of your water reserves at that Creek. If you have a little bit of a, like a filtration system. So I, I don't think that that's a bad idea. And, and anyone that's going to go on any kind of remote mountain ride, having a small hydration or sorry, a small water filtration system isn't, isn't a terrible idea. Oh yeah, for sure. Like I think of this stuff and there's a race in the upper Midwest up in Marquette called the Margie Gessick. And that's all the stuff that that race promoter will tell you to take. Cause it's, it's a, it's a long, it's a 112 mile race or something like that. The difference is. And this, and I told this to the promoter a couple of years ago, I'm like, the attrition rate at this race is at like 60 to 70%, right? And I told him, I'm like, you know why everybody quits is because it's so damn easy to quit because you're in so many urban areas, right? And so they even say to take up water filters and stuff. And it's like, you have so many options. I know people who have stopped at like Menards or Home Depot or Burger King, you know what I mean? And you know, it's like, whereas like this, this event promoter also does something called the crusher. And that is like, up oh, that is as remote as it gets in the attrition rate with that event is well, and it's, I've not done the crusher. I've done the Margie. 
the attrition rate with the crusher is actually way less because what do you, you know, like I was talking to the promoter about that particular race too. He's like, what are you going to do? Start a new civilization in the middle of nowhere? Like you have no option, but to finish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and that's what this reminds me of. I like that point because I think as humans, we, we tend to forget that we are survival driven mammals. And if you're faced with a situation where you have to get out of somewhere, like we can't do it if we are prepared to a point, you know, yeah, sure. You can dehydrate and wither away to nothing if you're unprepared, but if you're prepared, I mean, you can, you can get through any situation or if you have any kind of skill set. And I mean, what you just said definitely speaks volumes to that. Yeah. Let's get back on trail rating in general. Mm-hmm. In your experience, you've built, you know, we, we unearthed that you've built everywhere from Iowa to where we're just talking about the Palisade Plunge, which are two polar opposites. Mm-hmm. When you were building in Iowa, were, were those predominantly blue green trails or did you build some black stuff? And I'm talking in, you know, and that's in, we're going to stay on the premise of relative to that region, mm-hmm. you know, as a standard here for, the, for this conversation, at least. Um, I would say we did build some black stuff for the region because we had a tabletop line with jumps up to maybe 12 or 15 feet. And they were, they were jump lines that you could roll with no problem. And I actually don't recall the exact designation of that line in particular. It's at Ewing park and by downtown Des Moines. And you know, it's, it's really flowy and rhythmy. You have to land set, you know, get, get ready for the next jump. And what I do, another thing I think like if you don't make the start of the rhythm, like if you case the jump, overshoot it or whatever, don't stick your landing, then you won't make the next one and you won't make the next one and so on and so forth. So I, I want to say that, that they probably rated that like blue black, I think kind of right in the middle there because it's pretty fast and you have to negotiate some stuff and have some rhythm to get through the line and, and actually hit, hit lips and landings. But I, I would say, I mean, in Colorado, all of that is a green, you know, yeah, maybe a blue, maybe a blue, just because you should jump your bike if you're going to ride those jumps, but as they're designed to be ridden. We could probably go back to the comment that I made earlier about the having, having the ability to have bike body separation. Cause you're going to have to mm-hmm. have like body separation, even if you're not jumping to negotiate, you're not just going to be able to sit in your seat and coast over a tabletop. I mean, maybe you could, but it's, it's going to be super awkward at, at the very least. Right. Very awkward. little bucky and uncomfortable. Yes. Yes. So, <laughs> so mm-hmm. yeah. So what kind of conversations have you had as a builder with clients, whether it's public or private, just in your, in your experience when it comes to, you know, what type of trail they want? Or they're asking you to build. I think most of the time it's, I think most of the time the client already has the idea in their head of what, what they want the trail to be designated as, you know, it's already, or it's already designed and down on a map. And then it's either educating them why that's not a good idea or reinforcing why it is a good idea. And if it's possible or not possible. Deuterino for one instance was, was an instance where the client has these huge eyes. She's like, Oh man, we're going to do these cr- this crazy shit up here, man. And look at this rock roll. And we look down the rock roll and like, Oh, the rock roll is great. You know, it's 
25 feet tall. It's a steep piece of sandstone. Like it would be great to figure out how to get a bike up on top of this and then down it on the other side. But what was after it was completely like unfeasible to negotiate unless you're a Red Bull Rampage rider. You know, you had to come down the steep 70% rock slab, negotiate a six or seven foot drop onto 70% dirt that's strewn with boulders and then hook a 90 degree turn it would have to be a berm that we, and we hand built this trail that would have to be six or seven feet tall, reinforced by all those boulders and then somehow be sustainable over the long run. And, you know, and it took all of us builders to convince the client that that was a bad idea because it was, I mean, I wouldn't even say a one or two percenter line, like it was a half percenter line when it was, if it was all burned in and stuff like that would kill people. And then the go around was going to be stair. Like we had to build stair steps down this crevasse thing. And I was like, well, no one's going to want to, no one's going to want to ride the line. And then no one's going to want to get off their bike and do stairs. So let's go over here. Let's, let's explore another option. So that was kind of an instance of like reeling in a client to, to make their expectations a little more realistic and feasible for the public, you know, and like we're building trails for people to use. And if we're, you know, I think it's our duty to be educators sometimes and, and why that's a good idea or not. And then to have the ability to also build what the client is requesting to after these talks. In this particular case, was the client at an, at an ability level of a rider to be able to do what he wanted you guys to do as individually? Like he, was he in that half percent or was this just a wild vision? I think a wild vision with the ability, this guy blows my mind, actually. He's come down and he's probably about 60 years old, maybe almost 60 upper fifties. And this guy's always blowing my mind. Like anytime we built something hard on Hooligan or Deuterino or whatever, he's just coming down, going down this stuff. And none of us have even ridden it yet. He's like, oh man, this is such a great job. You know, you almost built it too easy. Whoa. Like what, really? (laughs) Wow, man. Okay. so. He has the eyes and the ability, which is, which is not often the case. Yeah. That's awesome. That's actually, that gives a person who's not 60 hope, right? (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Yeah, no, that's that's incredible. He's probably doing it on what, a a rigid 26 inch steel bike with V brakes too. (laughs) (laughs) No, but probably could. Yeah. I think there's, and you'd know this, but isn't there stories of that? you know, where you drop into horse thief bench. Cause that's a pretty nasty descent just to get into horse thief bench. Mm-hmm. But isn't, you know, back in the day when we didn't have what we have now, people were still had the ability to ride that. Yeah, definitely. That's one thing I, I, I remind myself and other riders often is we all rode really crazy, dumb stuff on in the nineties on cantilever brakes and fully rigid bikes with foot long stems and bar ends and, 13 inch wide bars all the time. Just got way in the back seat and prayed to the credit of modern riders and bikes Horse thief bench descent has degraded so much over the years that it's not the same at all as it was back then. Thankfully, a lot of the, a lot of the sand is gone and now there's just big holes that eat people. But yeah, you're right, man. It's, it's, it's funny. You know, like the North shore of British Columbia is a good example. 
like those trails are probably gnarlier back then than they are now, just because of sustainability practices of building. But those guys skidded down all that stuff and all those roots and rocks just the same. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've been to horse thief bench a couple of times, but it's been a decade or more. It's been more than a decade. I think 2000, <laughs> 2010, I think was the last time I was there. Unrecognizable now to you probably. So you're saying I could maybe ride it <laughs> or, or get eaten by a hole. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I don't know. Can't speak for you on that one. That's yeah. tough. All I know is that I, I'm like, the first time I saw it, I'm like, well, I've heard this trail is really awesome, but holy shit. Like if this is the trail, like that's a squirrel catcher and it doesn't even closely represent the trail because the trail is really pretty tame mm-hmm. and actually really iconic in terms of like the views from there, you know, and the, along the Colorado river, you know, and I just actually had this conversation with another person earlier this week that that trail in that particular region, I think from a scenic perspective, at least for me personally, and everybody has their own opinions is better than going to the grand Canyon. Cause you actually feel like you're intimately in the landscape there where the grand Canyon is so freaking big that it, 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 you feel like insignificant, right? Just looking at a postcard versus being in the postcard. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, horse thief is such a uh, it's it's very iconic. It's beautiful, and that you know that's 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 something to bring up the argument like you asked before. It's like I would say the horse thief bench is a blue, maybe blue black trail, but that drop in is not rideable by I would say ninety eight percent of the people that ride that trail. So you cannot designate that trail down there by the by the portage you have to go down to get to it. So it's just, it's just such a really tricky subject. Yeah, that's that actually brings up a really good point because you, if you you could you could probably, by what I was talking about earlier, label that trail double black based on getting into it, and then you're going to be in a blue experience. So it would be like you would eliminate so many people that could have such a good experience just by that right mm-hmm. there. Yeah, you know, that's actually I'm glad we I'm glad we made that. I'm glad we came to that point in this conversation because I think that right in itself, at least people that know that area might understand the context of the conversation better now. Mm-hmm. Cause I know I do mm-hmm. at least, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's, diff- it's difficult, man. Like, or it's, yeah, I just, I, I just really struggle with it, you know, as a builder. And I, I think my main frustrations are as, as trail builders, having the skill sets to build a green to double black experience kind of anywhere and, and not being, you know, just one cut one way for everything. Like, I don't know, man, it's, it's, it's tough. And to to look at things regionally instead of like, well, I built a black over here, so I need to build a black this way over there. Like it's not the case need to really have the mindset and the eyes to adapt to different terrains and different situations to, 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 to meet these clients needs or these communities needs. It's, it's, uh, it's tricky, man. Yeah. Switching gears as a trail builder, it's been said to me and I've actually experienced it myself that it's tougher to build a good solid green trail than a black trail. Generally speaking, what's your opinion on that? I would say absolutely correct. 
and and being as most trail builders are pretty proficient bike handlers it's really hard to scale back our vision to build for a green rider it's it's just tough because we have these habits through muscle memory to pump our bikes to to mindlessly use our brakes to do all these things like these habits that we that are ingrained in our skill set it's really hard to turn that off and uh build a green trail and it requires a heck of a lot more work and that's another thing is i think green trails often get underbid because and that might be full of shit i'm not sure but it seems like clients and builders underbid these things because they they're building an easy trail it'll be flat kind of featureless blah 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 but at the end of the day you're going to have to do a lot more work to make it smoother to undulate the terrain more to to slow people down without them having to use their brakes like it's going to take a lot more thought process so what i would see like to see practice as a standard in the industry is a green trail should be more expensive than a black trail it should take it should take more time it should be better designed better thought out not just a mixed mash of shitty rollers that seem fun, but they're not, they're not gave, gaining anyone any skills. So, yeah. And that, you know, that, I think you run into a client issue. I agree with you. And I think in the, in the industry by, I mean, hands down needs to do a better job at educating clients at that. Like when you look at a green trail, a green trail is going to be flat. A green trail is going to have and inherently like, depending on where you're at, it's going to be a lot longer because it's flatter and a lot longer means more money. You know, it's just, it's just the way it is. And that's where we, you know, and, but at the same time, if done right, especially for that client, maybe this is where the education piece comes in. If done right, that green trail can turn on a lot more people to riding mountain bikes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, you can make a black trail with a rake down the side of a hill, right? Pretty much, man. Rake and ride. Yep. But you can't, you just can't do that with green. And, you know, I've ran into this problem and I, again, I use my, most of my experiences from where I live and I've been asked time and time again, like, why don't we have more green trails? And I've, in my, my default answer, 95% of the time is because all the flat land has been developed but with houses or other actual infrastructure right and so what hasn't been developed is the stuff that's too steep to develop you know in terms of housing or building roads all the things all the other things that you can develop in flatter areas right and so that leaves us with mainly anything over 20 to 30 percent cross slope you know and to build a green trail in that type of topography is is going to be really difficult and really expensive but at the same time, probably pretty necessary. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you, and we don't want to build trails for a green rider, you know, someone that say rented a bike or even has a Walmart bike that's going to head out and check it out. I mean, we still, we don't want to make it boring. We don't want to make them like this dirt sidewalk. Like we still want it to be engaging. We still want to entice that rider to want to go back out there and be like, Oh, I should have just ridden the sidewalk. I, I was able to stop by Seven Eleven and get a Slurpee. Like what, what makes me want to go back out there again? And I think rider engagement is something that's really huge for that. 
Yeah. And sometimes, and again, this is a, you know, this is uh dependent on the location, but sometimes that rider engagement doesn't actually have to do entirely with the trail at all, except maybe that rider engagement is that trail goes through a really scenic area and you get spectacular views, even though it's really green. Right. Absolutely. Aesthetics. I, I believe in trail design are huge. Yeah. Especially yeah. on a lower, especially on a lower speed trail. Yeah. Like, like find those, find those features in nature and, and take people by them. I think that's, that's one of our responsibilities with, with it. getting people in nature and trail experiences is to show them, you know, why are we, why are we out there? What, it, what entices us to go on these rides or, or to build this trail? It's, it's honestly to be in nature and connected with that. Yeah, I was out, I was riding. This is, it would have been in probably 2017. I was in, I was in the Bentonville area with my family riding the back 40 loop. And I, you know, I've been, I've been thinking about trails for many, many, many years. And if you think about the evolution of trails from what they, what they were originally, and I mean like pre-transportation, so pre-roads, trails at that point were a utilitarian purpose of getting you from point A to point B. Now we don't have, you know, most trails, almost all trails do not serve that purpose anymore. You know, and so I came to the conclusion, I remember distinctly in one ride that every trail should tell its own story, you know, because that's what you're, you're, and that story is that experience, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it's kind of a glimpse into the mind of, of the creator of the trail as well. And what brought me to that conclusion is the client says build trail from point A to point B, Right but there's like zero creativity to get into it. And the, and it's actually built with almost the utilitarian purpose in mind. And in my mind, I'm like, there's so many missed opportunities here because you, you, you accomplish the objective of getting the person or the user from point A to point B, but you did it in the most boring or maybe hellacious way. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that I think also falls back on an uneducated client you know, which thankfully trails are getting where they are, where clients are getting more educated and where the, the industry as, as in the trail building industry is a lot more recognized now as a profession, you know, so we see these things changing. But when you have a client that says, I need you to go to this parking from this parking lot to this parking lot, I don't care how you get there. It's like to me, and, I'm, and I've used this example in, in person with in conversations with people like, and this is where I think planning is super important, but it's like, okay, I'm a home builder. You tell me, build me a home. I could give you a cardboard box or I could build you the Taj Mahal, right? Uh But there's people that live in boxes. Uh So it's just, and that's, and then, and now we're kind of going down the planning wormhole, but that's where I think planning is, is becoming so much at one point was pretty underrated in our, I think in the industry. And now it's becoming like, a lot more common and for a, and a, for a lot of good reasons. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's more, more competition. And I think good, good, healthy competition in business is, is great because it, it, it makes people expand their minds and be more creative to, to win over. I mean, anyone in business is there to make some money, but there's also people that are there for passion. And, and I think, clients are now starting to recognize a little bit more of the creative aspect of, of trail construction and 
starting at the planning process as well. Like you can look at a plan that, you know, is, is more of a connection type plan or more of an experience type plan. And I think clients are nowadays more willing to pay more money to have a, a better experience created for them versus let's get people from A to B. Like let's get people instead, let's get people from A to B and in the most aesthetically pleasing way and, and really take advantage of this resource we have being the land to, to really utilize it well. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that ultimately that's why we're building trails now, you know, it's, and that's for all users. I don't care if you're on a bike, a horse, Mm -hmm. walking, running, whatever your one wheel, (laughs) you know, whatever your, whatever your use, you know, your vehicle for use is like, that's, you know, that's just, that's kind of where we've gone and where we should, you know, people go to nature for different reasons, but they all go for that experience, whatever that experience is for them. Absolutely. I think Benville is the great example of, of recreational infrastructure used for the health of the community. When I was working there last on my last project, I talked to several people and I started asking them the question is like, why, why do people here seem so happy? Like you all are very grounded. You're very happy. You're not complaining that there's more trails getting put in your backyard. You're actually grateful. And then they're like, well, I don't need to tromp through the woods anymore to get my outdoor experience. I can just go for a walk on the trail, you know, get my fresh air, feel, feel at one with nature and feel more grounded, you know, to like our ancestry roots or what have you to just being outside and breathing the fresh air and unplugging from technology and all these outside stressors that our bodies are not used to. And, and I, and I heard that from multiple people, which is, which is a good tell that, that it is really doing well in the community, more trails, more, more access to these greenways and these places that are somewhat, especially they're impenetrable from the sidewalk. You look at these walls of green and you know, you don't want to go in there and get bit by a snake or get eaten apart by ticks. Like it's nice to have a trail to go walk through and experience these places. Yeah. Or just the sheer task of getting through a bunch of invasive species. Plant species. Yes. Yes. Which sometimes are completely impenetrable. <laughs> mm-hmm. Depending on where you are. You know, last time we talked, you were, uh, you were getting near the end of your project in Bentonville. How'd that thing end up? Oh, really, really good. Really, really pretty piece of trail. Built some nice, nice bridges in there. The community was really happy to be connected to the Traverse Loop. It was just, it was really well received, turned out nice. And it actually opened up some more work for me there, which starts this fall. So I'm pretty excited for that. That's awesome. That's really good. Before we open a, a slightly different can of worms, that's going to be a lot shorter. Um, this is, we're going to go into a topic that I want to explore with a, a handful of different people. Do you have anything else that we want to close on with the, with the trail rating system as far as like, you know, kind of getting people to think about think about it from more of a regional perspective rather than a national or international perspective. Yeah. I think just having some open discussions, you know, like a PTBA conference would be a great example to get a bunch of builders and clients all together and not necessarily have a seminar on the thing where it's one person up there talking. I think there needs to be more round table type discussions on this stuff. Cause I think we all really need to be reeled in here. Like what, what makes a black trail? What makes a blue trail? What makes a pro line trail? 
you know, and, and, and I think there could just be a little bit more standardized of practices to, to kind of like reel it all in and educate, educate clients and evolve as builders. And I don't know what that looks like. I don't even know if it's a feasible thing. I mean, as trail builders, we're all pretty stubborn in our creative habits. And we think oftentimes our way is the best way. And we're not necessarily, not many trail builders are open to discussions or constructive criticisms, really. It seems like it's kind of an ego-driven kind of profession a little bit. And maybe I'll get in trouble for saying that, but I do think it's true. You know, there's a lot of like my way or the highway out there with, with, with some of these people, not everyone, obviously, but I think, I think we just need to talk more. And like, I thanked you on my last podcast for just opening up communication and discussions with trail builders, because we're not all necessarily great communicators. I think it's, um, it's just imperative that we all kind of get on the same page and get on a similar page with pricing. I think it's good to be competitive and, and bid on things and underbid and win or overbid and win. But to, to, to severely undercut a really good builder to get a job and, and give subpar product, I think is, is a problem. And I don't, I mean, that's another thing. I don't really know what that looks like or, or how to move forward with something like that. Like that's just construction industry stuff, but I just really want our industry to be looked at more in the creative aspect. I don't want general contractors coming into trail building thinking that they can just all like build great trail because it's just like building a sidewalk or a road. Like it's nothing, nothing in the same, like there's a lot of creativity out there. And as those, as those guys come into the industry, I hope that the creative guys with a nice portfolio of, of pretty work that's well-received and stupid trail forks rated it well, like I want to see those guys get more work, you know? Because we need more good trails. We don't necessarily need more trails. We need more good trails now, especially with this oversaturation of trail building. Not oversaturation, but there's a lot of building going on. And I just want all these communities to just have great trails, not just have trails in general. I want them, I want them to be great. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the roundtable is, you know, I, we'll, we're going to play off the roundtable first. The roundtable is extremely important. So I was invited to come to Deer Valley to speak at the NSAA downhill bike park summit. And I didn't even really know that was a thing before I was invited. I knew what the NSAA was because I've spent many years working at a ski area, but I didn't know they had downhill summertime downhill bike park summits. And it's funny because I got into podcasting because I wanted to be a better speaker, but then I quickly realized that I'm only speaking to one person like you, like you and I can completely edit everything. So you really don't become a better speaker, right? And I felt yeah. like I had, I felt really, I was super nervous going there and I felt really like unprepared or underprepared because I didn't know, like, that's not my world, right? It just, it just isn't. And so then I had to kind of reframe it and whether they liked it or not, I think it will, I think it was well-received. At least I was told it was well-received. It's like, look, I'm coming here. I got invited because I'm, I'm a podcaster and I'm supposed to basically provide a fresh perspective into this world. But I flipped the whole script on them. And I was like, look, I don't, nobody, nobody comes onto my podcast really to hear me talk. They, they come to hear my guests. And how often do you get 50 people that work in the bike park industry in the same room to have a conversation? And that was that session. There's probably 200 people at that conference, but I think there's probably 50 or so people at, at my session. 
And so I, I flipped the script on him. And I thankfully, I had, I had Mark Hayes there from Highland Bike Park to kind of help me break the ice. But I basically had some topics, you know, I had like three topics as discussion points and had them all talk to each other, just exactly how you're saying. And it, and it worked right. out good because people could share the things that they're seeing where they're at for those specific topics. And I don't know if there's enough of that going on because going to a, for me, going to a presentation and hearing one person talk for an hour, or in this case, 75 minutes, unless that person is like Joe Rogan, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if you're going to keep my attention, but if, but how, again, how, you know, even at the social events after these things, like you get maybe three or four people around talking to each other, but how often you get 50 people that work in the same industry to share their thoughts and share their ideas and share what they're seeing. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's huge. So thankfully I then didn't have to talk a whole lot because they all talked. <laughs> I like your tactic there. I was, I was thinking I was thinking the same thing. I was like, man, if I ever gave a little seminar, it'd be nice to like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to do this by, by questioning and, and, and encouraging discussion amongst us all to take the pressure off myself. That would be, I like that tactic. It's nice, (laughs) but no, you're right, man. And it's, we all get so caught up in the hustle of our, of our business and our lives and and what we're doing. We, We rarely have the opportunity to, to visit with each other and, to tell us what's worked. And, and I mean, we're all brothers and sisters in this, in this game here. And, and why not learn from each other to help just create better experiences for the users? I mean, it's something that's very rare and, yeah. and I would like yeah. to see more of it for sure. Yeah. And hopefully the other, the other thing with that is, you know, just getting the standards, the standards and the contracts written properly. So that general contractor that doesn't have any troubling experience, you know, just can't, isn't even eligible to bid on that product. You know, we actually went about, I went into this topic or Gary Showquist when he had, when I had him on the show a few weeks ago, he went into this knowing that trail building in Minnesota was going to be federally funded and knowing some of the standards that come with federal funds. Like how do you get builders like that aren't contractors, but are trail artists in here to build this and to tighten up those standards. And I, so I think that's, you know, as the, as the professional trail building association grows and gets more integrated into say just your local parks department, you know, so they can educate those people in those parks departments that are maybe hiring whoever they're hiring to get their trails built. Like they can keep that standard there through contract language and pre-qualifying people that are actually qualified, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a young industry and there's, there's definitely some growth to be had. And I I do feel like there are steps being taken in the right direction. I mean, I've seen it. I, I've, I'm fortunate in the fact that I've seen it from both sides because in my professional career, it's, it's with Wisconsin DOT and I've seen a lot of contracts and a lot of contractors, you know, and, and it's like, yeah, I would definitely not want a planner or engineer designing a trail or B contractor building that trail because everything's straight. <laughs> there's, mm-hmm. there's no, like I've actually, I've had the opportunity in maintenance when I've, when I've worked in highway maintenance to like actually use almost grade reversals in ditch lines. Because, you know, it's, it's the same thing with trails. Like you have a, it took as a way to slow down water. And I've had county workers who, which is who we hire to do our maintenance in Wisconsin, look at me like I'm crazy. Like, what do you mean? You can't just do a straight line from there to there. I'm like, no, I want you to like get this train to be variable so you can slow the water down. So you don't have this huge head of water at the end of this ditch, which is then blowing out whatever is there. Mm -hmm. 
And I, and I took that directly from my trail building experience. That didn't come from any, anything I got at the DOT. That's great, man. It's uh, yeah. Working with hydrology is one of our major, major hurdles. Yeah. Well, so before we let you go, I'm going to, I'm going to tee up a future conversation with uh, hopefully a handful of different people. And that is the uh, pay to play model, which I know is super controversial as well. But you and I did have a little bit of texting back and forth, and I think we're on the same page with this. And, and, you know, in some, some areas, as you had pointed out, may only want to be that volunteer free community. But as we, as this industry grows and we get more trails put down, that means we need more maintenance and maintenance. I don't care what anybody says. And I see it. And again, I see this on the, on the transportation side of things like everybody's about building the shiny new thing and no one puts any money into, into fixing that shiny new thing two or three or 10 years down the road. Right. Mm -hmm. It's just fun, 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 new, but nobody talks about maintenance. And this is actually maintenance is a conversation I'm going to have with one of your, uh, with your former, former employer here in a week. (laughs) So that'll be the next podcast with Greg. But yeah, it's, I, I believe in the pay to play model from the simple perspective. And I've used, we, I think we, we were both going back and forth on texting, like the golf course analogy. Like, could you imagine if golf courses were volunteer maintained mm-hmm. and granted they take more maintenance, generally speaking than a trail, maybe not, I mean, when you're talking more gravity based stuff and jumpy type stuff that now your maintenance comes up on the trail side of things, but you know, I don't know of any other industry that relies on volunteers as much as ours. Yeah, I don't, I don't believe there is. And, and I think where, where the confusion is, is, is most trail networks fall under the infrastructure of parks, but a city park versus a trail trail park or whatever, you know, is like the city park has trees, grass, sometimes a pool, volleyball courts, all these things. And they have paid, you know, employees to go mow the lawn, trim the trees, clean the pool, man the pool, have lifeguards, all these things. The trails are overlooked in that sense to where I think a lot of people don't understand or municipalities understand that when trails degrade and they don't get the proper maintenance, then they get more dangerous over time. And I think that's an important thing to look at. Like you're definitely not going to take your kid you know, your, your, your teenage kid and his buddies to the pool, you know, maybe doesn't have lifeguards or, or young kids, whoever doesn't really matter, but you'll gladly drop them off at the dirt jump park at the base of the lunch loops that doesn't see maintenance, but twice a year. And you'll go sit in your car and go to your, you know, your meeting or stick around and Facebook out or something while your kid's down riding pretty unsafe features because there's no one working on them you know, these great parks in Denver, you know, bike parks that are, that are fall under the infrastructure of parks and maintenance. They have paid full-time people out there working and making everything safe all the time. And and these these parks are great and you can go drop your kid off and be pretty comfortable that they're going to be safe because everything is, is well-maintained. And I just don't understand why, you know, these big trail networks just don't have paid people to go out and and do maintenance and i would also like to see in more contracts and it'll probably come up with greg because it's something we've talked about several times is having line items in a contract that you know the trail company that built it will perform maintenance over x amount of years or whatever or do some training 
And I, there just needs to be better funding to these advocacy groups so that they can afford, if it's going to be volunteers, I mean, it still takes money to put on these, these maintenance events and, and buy all the hot dogs and Gatorades and beer and tools and have proper tools for these people to go out and work with and, and train people to work under. And that requires money. And as, as, as the trail networks grow, there just needs to be, it just needs to be looked at a little bit different. And I do believe that there's probably a Gucci class of mountain bikers that would be willing to pay into a club to have professionally built trails, well-designed that are well-maintained and they can go out there on their really nice plastic bikes and, and pay their membership fees and have these really dialed trails. I do think that that can exist. And in the South Midwest, I think there's more parks popping up, you know, Howler bike park or any of these other places. Uh, one place down in Georgia. Um, I can't remember the name of it. I mean, it looks amazing. And there's Jared's place. I was just there a month ago. <laughs> oh, nice. Looks fun, man. And it's purpose built and people seem stoked and it's, it's pay to play. And those trails are always going to ride well, you know, and, and, and I think some more of that, some more of those models can be popping up around the country, but you know, you go to the Northwest and what I mentioned in that, in our text train is, you know, Bellingham, Washington, for instance, my buddies that work at transition bikes were blown away when they under, when they learned that there's professional trail builders that get paid pretty good money to go build trails when everything up there is volunteer built and everything up there is amazing because those volunteer guys are dedicated. They're up there. They have their name on the trails, trail sign. You know, this, this trail is built and maintained by Joe blow and it's, it's always good. You know, that's, that's his, that's his piece that he's, that he's giving to the community. And I don't understand why that isn't, more of an adopted thing nationwide, but I'm glad it isn't because we need to get paid to build trails. Otherwise there's no career here or industry. So. Yeah. And you brought up more than once in that conversation and we brought it up in texting too. Like you had texted something that I was actually typing at the same time. So we were on the same wavelength, literally at the same minute. Whereas I, (laughs) the pool thing and and like, like literally the day at the day before we were texting about that, I had taken myself and two daughters to the local pool and you know, it's, it's $4 a piece for each of us to get in. So it was 12 bucks and we were there for two hours and I'll gladly pay $12 for that, that experience. Right. And so that's a, that's an example of a city city park infrastructure that you have to pay to get into. And, and maybe $4 isn't even enough. Uh, one other thing that you brought up and I got, and this has came up when I interviewed Nika Mullally about his bike park is that he's got people, you know, paying to be members of ride Canuga in Pisca area. And he's like, yeah, people have came up to me and they're like, this is the closest thing I'll ever be to a member of a country club. And that like totally like shifted my brain of like, look at the different models that work well, which is like, look at a hunting club, you know? And I mean like, say like an upland bird hunting club. And that's like the exact model of what you just described of like the Gucci mountain biker that has the plastic bikes and the cash coated Kuat rack, not to mention the suspension, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and like you, can, I think, I think there's such a huge future of of like, I don't want to say private in the terms of exclusive, because I don't want it to be exclusive, but mm-hmm. a private club type situation that then has paid staff both 
from a professional builder perspective and a professional maintainer perspective. You know, I mean, look at ski areas. They're, they're really the same thing. The difference is, is that ski areas, a lot of times people equate the dollar you're paying or the money you're paying for the lift to the top. When the reality is that, and, and I, and I know this has been a hot topic in the ski industry, especially in recent years with up with people skinning up slopes to then ski down. And it's like, well, you're skinning on, on snow that was made and groomed. And there's a lot of money that goes into making snow and grooming snow. And people don't really can't wrap their head around that because they think they're really only paying for the lift to the top. And the reality is they're paying for the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, what's the point of, of skinning up a ski area? I mean, the point is, is because you have, there's trees cleared, the snow's hard. You could just walk right on up. It's easy. You're not in a skin track in the back country dealing with all the, all the elements and the forces and good or bad conditions. Like, you know what you're going to get. So you should be willing to pay for what you're wanting out of your experience. Yeah. Well, I think we'll leave people with that to be continued <laughs> in terms of the pay to play model and the different avenues out there. Cause I think, cause I think there is a, I mean, there's other benefits to it as well, especially if it's on private land, you know, and that is mm-hmm. in the terms of like less red tape, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, mm-hmm. and we're not going to, we're not going to open this can of worms, but it was talked about in, in Nico's <laughs> thing. I'm just going to crack the can open, but we're going to leave it like that. And that is, you know, sometimes when trails get, get built in a public setting, they're built more by popular wants and demands. Even if those popular wants and demands by the riders make absolutely no sense to build, and then you get a horrible trail, right? Whereas if you have a builder mm-hmm. that actually knows what they're doing, and like, we'll, we'll use Ride Canuga. You know, Nico and his crew, they didn't ask anybody what they want. They just went out and built what they thought would be good. And the place is, is good because they built what they knew to build and it's diverse. And so they got everything from a, like a, you know, Euro or, you know, British style rut track to a line style jump lines. Right. And none mm-hmm. of that was done through asking anybody what they want. They just took their own collective experiences of what they've liked and put them in one place. Yeah, man. And the only quick thing I have to say about that is, you know, as contractors, if we were doing tile and Ma and Pa Kettle's bathroom and Ma Kettle wants green grout and we think it should be blue grout, she's probably going to get green grout and it might not look as good as the blue in the long run. So, <laughs> Well, James, let's wrap this thing up. I think it's awesome to have these conversations. And this is like, this format is actually the, a direction that I really wanted to go with the podcast where we can have just candy conversations about things happening in the trail industry. and. And hopefully it spurs, you know, more conversations like this with more people so we can have more roundtable type discussions, whether it's in person or not, you know, it's just, Mm -hmm. I think it's really good for, for that knowledge sharing aspect. And hopefully people also find some entertainment in this with this as well. Absolutely, man. I appreciate your time. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's a holiday weekend and, uh, hopefully you have some good plans to at least relax and have some fun. Yeah, a little bit, a few hours. I'm going to go build some jumps right now though. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to go ride my bike on some jumps. How's that? Oh, nice. Perfect. Symbolic of our relationship. Exactly. I'm the rider. You're the builder. <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you how to build it. Just do what you do. And I'm going to, I'm going to like it. <laughs> Sweet, man. So well, thanks Josh. Yeah. Have, a, have a great day. Enjoy.
Yeah, you too. Thank you very much, James. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening. Links for the various topics discussed on the show can be found in the show notes. If you like what you have heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing the shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you are new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Don't forget to leave a rating and review, as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect podcast. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. If you have ideas on future communities or people to feature on Trail Effect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.